Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been affected by and overcome adversity. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of a variety of guests, as well as your host. You will hear stories of despair, recovery, and triumph from people who have risen from or are making their way through wilderness experiences. The goal of the Unhooked podcast is to take a deep, productive look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of affliction. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real-life stuff that all of us face. You will hear wisdom and hope from people who are fighters, who fought to persevere through bewildering circumstances and difficult obstacles. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I am really excited to introduce this week's conversation that I am having with Jeff Van Vonderen, who was born, and I will give him a brief introduction and then just let him get right to it. He was born in Coleman, Wisconsin. He is an author, a motivational speaker, a former pastor, an interventionist who is best known for his appearances on the A&E reality show, Intervention. Jeff Van Vonderen has written seven books on various topics such as family troubles, drug addiction, and spirituality. He is a highly sought after speaker and consultant, both nationally and internationally. For over 35 years, individuals, families, and organizations have benefited from Jeff's skills and understanding in the areas of addiction, family systems, and recovery. Jeff is one of the featured interventions on the A&E Network Emmy-winning documentary series about intervention, and the show has won two Emmys for Outstanding Reality Program and Outstanding Cinematography. For more information about the series or anything else, you can find the links at the end of the show, and I will link them when I send them out. Um, I recently read something interesting as well about Jeff Van Vonderen. He is in a 2013 Eminem lyric, which I thought was just awesome and reaches my son's generation and kind of crosses all thresholds. He is kind and tender with the families we see him engage with. That's something that drew me to his story. It's almost like he feels like a personal friend to all who watch, as though you truly know him and want him in your corner in the tough times. And because I've personally enjoyed having somewhat of an open window view into Jeff's work, I invited him on to share his recovery story and explain his work. So with that said, it is such an honor to have you on for our families. Thank you so much. And if you could just get right into all of it. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, A couple things to start with. Okay, first of all, this is kind of a comment on our culture, I think. So that Emmy that you talked about, we won that in 2009. Mm -hmm. And I also was the focus of a South Park episode. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And uh, and they were they weren't so mean. They can be really mean, but they were they, it was ludicrous, but it wasn't really mean. But anyway, I got more emails about South Park than the Emmy, just to show you where people's heads are. Oh my goodness! I will have to look that up. Yeah, well, it's filthy. So oh no! Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second thing is, um, you know, I get I want to clarify something. Okay, I I get. I'm not comfortable with being treated like a celebrity just because yeah. of how I'm built. But also, the the dictionary defines celebrity as 
a person to be celebrated. Okay. I think that the person to be celebrated is the person who realizes his life isn't working and he's hurting himself and others and decides to go back, go to treatment and get her life back. That yeah. They're the person to be celebrated, not me. I just show up. Mm, I love that. So anyway, just having said that, let's go. Okay, I get it. All right. So if you kind of just want to give us an overview or your own somewhat of a lead, that would be awesome. All right. Well, so I've been in this field since 1978. So that's actually 40 years now. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And um, I started as a technician uh, in a treatment center. Technician would be like an orderly, I suppose, in a hospital setting. And, and um, but as a technician, the way our treatment center worked is that we had uh, four counselors, four therapists, and then technicians. And when a person came to treatment for the first week, they were in group with technicians. And we were basically spies, you know, for the four counselors, because at the end of that, we would say, well, I think this would be a good fit, et cetera. You get the picture. Um, but, you know, I mean, I wasn't headed toward the recovery field. I was in seminary. I was headed toward, I mean, I had taken Greek. I, had, I was headed toward teaching New Testament. And my first year at the treatment center was just like I needed a job to pay the bills so that I could go do what I was going to do. But it was such an incredible fit for me personally. And it seemed like people were really benefiting from me being there that when I graduated, I just stayed in the field of recovery. So that's how I got into the whole thing. I'm done. So, and then before that, what did you have a particular interest? Um, I know the show's been pretty open with, I think you had experienced perhaps a relapse a few years ago and you were really forthcoming about that. So I didn't know if you wanted to share a bit of your own recovery experience. Well, let me talk, talk about the relapse first. Okay. Where, where I live, there is a river, and the river is, like, rough enough that people can kind of do some, I would say, mild white water rafting. And if you've ever done that, you know, when you get in the river with your canoe, you're paying really close attention. you got to watch out for, you know, rocks and tree branches and shallow places and all that. So you pay really close attention. But then the river empties into a lake because there's a dam. And now the water's calm. And now you're not paying attention. Now you're looking at the geese next to the shore or, you know, the families having a picnic or that kind of stuff. So you're not looking or looking ahead. You're looking around. And then there's a dam. And if you don't start paying attention near the end, you could go over the dam. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, that relapse is because I became complacent because see, I think that in recovery, when you first get in recovery, you're paying really close attention. You've got tools from the treatment center or whatever that you didn't have before. You have warnings about what doesn't work. You have, you know, you're really in touch with the fact that this is 
killing you and your relationships. And so you're paying really close attention. But as time goes on, you need to keep paying attention. Yeah. But see, at that point, I stopped paying attention and I got complacent. And you know, it was a one-time deal. But still, I mean, I went over the dam. <laughs> I love the honesty of it. And I love that people rally and encourage and don't, um, if, when you have a good recovery community, they receive you back in with understanding and positivity. Like, okay, let's just keep going forward. I love that. Well, you know, I, I didn't actually physically go over a dam, but here's a little, a little bit of a irony, I suppose. So that real life stream and lake I told you about in the dam on the other side of the dam, where it's just a river again, there actually is the building where Al-Anon and AA meet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that weird? That is yeah. really, that is a living metaphor. <laughs> yeah. And um, so when, when I did that, um, the next day, I called my daughters, and I told them, I have four daughters, they're all married, I told them, and then I called the show and I told them and I said, you know, there's so much at stake here that I want, I need, I need you to find this out for me and then do whatever you have to do to protect the show because there are lives at stake and it's too important that they would be affected by what I did. I mean, I was thinking they would be affected in some way anyway, but let's, let's get out, you know, with the truth here. Right. So, you know, they required that I get a full psych workup and go to counseling and go to AA and all this stuff. But the the bigger thing they did was they um, decided that, you know, and they decided I'd take some time off from the show. But right at about the six-month period, there was a show that was, I think it was the intervention show, but it wasn't intervention. It was... Uh, Christopher Lawford was going to be the moderator and we interventionists were going to be there. And then they had like, I think six families who had been on the show. And so the show was kind of like an update on everything, you know? And, uh, so I told Christopher Lawford what I was going to say ahead of time. And so when he got to me, he said, so Jeff, how are you doing? <laughs> and I told him the whole deal. Um, and people in the audience, back to your point, clapped. They, they stood up and clapped when I did that. But, you know, I, I'm not sure how – I mean, I've gotten a lot of flack for that and called a hypocrite because I relapsed and all that <sighs> stuff. So w whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter because it was something that I did and something I needed to tell people about because lives were at stake. When somebody has a relapse – lives aren't always at stake besides their own. But in my case, because I was a public person and put in front of everybody as an interventionist and stuff, I thought I didn't want to cancel out any, anybody's positive experience or chance at having a positive experience. So I just thought, you know, I'm just going to tell this. And, and by that time, it wasn't a good or bad thing anymore. It was just a... Th true thing right 
You know what I mean by that? I do. And it's interesting to me that, that anyone that would say that doesn't understand the process of being authentic. Be, the actual definition of the word hypocrite means pretender. So I would have found it more hypocritical to have suffered a relapse and hit it. But, the fact, but being open about it, and I don't know if they were speaking to whether a relapse happened or not, but that's really nobody's business to judge. So I, I really don't understand the negativity, and it's just part of it, I guess, and something that you have to kind of stiff arm. The, the negativity and the, the, the name-calling and stuff about being a hypocrite, that was because if I'm doing that behavior, I must be pretending to be an interventionist on the show. Didn't understand that. That was the contradiction to them, I think. But um, I also think that, you know, even to this day, there's a stigma attached to being an addict or, you know, using in a way that's negative. Uh, although, with this whole legalization of marijuana thing, we're kind of taking away the stigma. And maybe this is a different podcast because I have some pretty strong feelings about that. But <laughs> I think that. There has always been a lot of shame about alcoholism and about addiction on the part of the addict and also on the part of the people who love the addict. Yeah. Um, which results in the hallmark symptom of the disease, which is denial. Okay. Yep. So sometimes people ask me, uh, you know, what do you think of Bravo's show on addiction? Or what do you think of, you know, the show addiction or the show celebrity rehab or all that kind of stuff? All right. Well, I definitely have opinions about all those things. But, you know, A&E didn't want me to say what I really felt. <laughs> <laughs> then they would get in a war with Bravo or, you know right. what I mean? It's, it's, it's not a necessary thing. Right. But, There's also a new show called Mom. It's a sitcom, and it's centered around alcoholic sure. drug addiction that, that attend meetings. It's one of my favorite shows. Well, so here is my answer, and this is still my answer, okay? Um, anytime it becomes more okay to talk about alcoholism and addiction, saves lives. I agree. Okay. Even if I like or don't like a show or whatever, which, by the way, who cares if Jeff Van Bonner likes a show? But the point is, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But anytime you make it okay to talk about this problem where denial kills people. Yeah. Now they have permission to talk about it. Saves lives, which is really why I said yes to the show in the first place. I, I had no aspiration to be on TV. I, you know, I, uh, the reason I said yes is because, um, two things. One thing is because, um, probably more than half of the interventions I did, this is before the show, uh, somebody said, um, wow, I didn't know there was such a thing which of course there is, or they said, um, if I had known about this five years ago, maybe my dad would still be alive, which mm -hmm. is also true, okay? And I thought, well, there is such a thing and it does work and people's lives are saved, so it's okay 
to talk about this. You know, we should be talking about this. So that's I why, that's that's why I to the show. I, I envision some, you know, parents sitting around on the sofa on a Sunday night, wringing their hands because they just finally gave up on their meth-addicted son or daughter and took away their cell phone finally and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And now they're on the street and they don't know what they are and they've given up and they're surfing on the channels and they come across the show and they realize, no, there, there is one more thing you can do. So, right. And it's, it got people talking about it. It was one of the first shows that really everyone was hearing about where these things were starting to enter mainstream conversations. Yeah, that's right. And intervention for sure. Right. Because then after that, you know, they had an intervention on South Park. Um, I remember watching a show where uh, Gibbs on NCIS came downstairs into the room where, uh, I can't remember her name now, but the Polly Peretta, the actress, she was the tech, you know, she was the geek. But everybody was down there, okay? And he walks in the room, looks around, says, this better not be an intervention. I mean, it be, yeah. It became a topic uh, in mainstream media. And uh, see, what that means is lives will be saved, even that goofy thing. Well, sometimes you even see people on there wondering if that's kind of what the situation is. And I just wonder, at this point, kind of almost everyone knows. Like when I ask somebody, have you seen that show before? It's not often that someone hasn't heard of it. Oh, yeah. And I, I attribute that to A&E doing that show which was risky for them at the beginning because they didn't know how it would go and, you know, they've got to find sponsors and all that. And actually, one of the biggest struggles the whole time was finding sponsors hmm. because you couldn't have liquor commercials and you couldn't have uh, Nutrisystem or you right. know, that kind of commercial. Um, and it's kind of a gnarly show, so, I mean, it's not like a happy – we're all part of the Chevrolet family, you know, like that. So, but they, they pulled it off. Um, but it was, it was tough. And I remember the first year when the show was on, I was doing an intervention in Fort Worth and I was done on Sunday afternoon and I went to the hotel and I turned on intervention and there was a vodka commercial. Mm -hmm. wow. And I called the guy, Sam Mettler, he's created the show. I called him and I said, Sam, you know, fix this or I quit. And he, wow. did. he did. I said, there's, you know, there's another time, this is maybe the second season where my daughters were all going to Boston for a sister trip and they were staying at a hotel by the Newark airport. And they called me and they said, there was a Nutrisystem and a, and a, um, you know, like one of those bathing suits that make you look thinner. Right. You know, one of those. Yep. Commercial. And the show was about this gal that was eating disorder and puking in plastic bags and hide them in their closets. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I called Sam and said, fix this, and he did. Well, that's good. It yeah, seems it like it's a, a station that wants to reach the reality of what's going on behind closed doors. So yeah. I'm glad that he respected that. I think they went over and above 
in good ways because the truth is the network isn't always in control of the commercials. Um, a lot of times the uh, service provider, you know, like the cable company or mm -hmm. the satellite company, they're in charge of the commercials. Um, and so if they wanted to do something other than that, they could. But I don't think anybody ever did. I think that that was pretty much it. Right. So anyway. Um, I read actually that you were a pastor before, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and I kind of feel like just from, in my opinion, it can, that can, ministry can be similar to intervening and helping families heal that have been affected by addiction. But I also know church and, and situations like that can be a trigger for some people who have maybe grown up being injured in church situations. So I was wondering if you could kind of compare the two experiences, ministry and recovery, and yeah. explain if your prior ministry experience comes into play with this work. Sure. Well, first of all, I think that the, the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has sent many more people to church than the church has to AA. Well, yeah. That's a good point. I will say that, okay? Yeah. And I have been trying to smuggle recovery into the church for 40 years, and it's yeah. a tough crowd. Tough crowd. One of the main um, objections that I uh, came in contact with early on, because I was also like doing seminars in churches called Good News for the Chemically Dependent and Those Who Love Them, okay? Which I still have in, on audio tape. And... Um, but one of the big objections to the whole thing about recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous was that they let, I guess, people have higher power or God as they understood them. And they didn't like that. They thought that they knew the name of their higher power, which, by the way, I think I do too, but that's just my bias. I get to. I get to. Right. But that's my bias. And... Um, so, so, and, and they objected to the concept of a disease because they thought that if you let people have a disease, it lets them off the hook. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, see, I have diabetes. I've been diagnosed for 10 years now. And when I got diagnosed with diabetes, I did not feel like now I'm off the hook. I felt like now I'm on the hook. Wow. Because, good. Good point. Yeah, because, now, well said. Now, now I know what I have, and I can choose to do something about it or choose not to, but I'm on the hook now, okay? And I think that that's what it does. And also, um, the, the thing about the disease, no, the thing about higher power. So I would ask you, I'll be a very conservative church that was really upset about higher power and God as you understand them. So I'd say, so I'd, I would say, well, why don't I ask you a question? Okay. How many of you here, I want you to raise your hand, okay? How many of you here do not have a relationship with God as you understand him? Nobody ever raised their hand. Everybody had a relationship with God as, as they understood him. They just didn't want to let alcoholics. Oh. Did you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And even in that congregation they wouldn't have exactly the same understanding of God as everybody else. 
in that congregation. Right. Everybody's understanding would be different, even if it's minute. So the truth is, everybody has a relationship with God as they understand him, but the church didn't want to, you know, let people. And that was part of their negativity by about 12-step groups and things like that. Now, the, the other question was about how it relates to the relationship between ministry and recovery. Uh, well, my, the ministry experience actually started in 1976. I was a junior high pastor at a big congrega- congregational church. I actually had hair when I started working with junior hires. <laughs> And, but anyway, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I was already listening. But anyway, so, <laughs> so anyway, um, but my, my seminary training switched from New Testament to pastoral care, you know, pastoral yeah. care. And then that's when I started at the treatment center and all this. Uh, but the biggest contribution to the thing about recovery for me from my training, from my time in the ministry, which I still think I am technically, but um, is grace, the concept of grace. And the way that that filters into how I am with addicts, which you mentioned on the introduction, you know, some perception of, of how I come across Mm-hmm. is I I really I really respect people's uh, right to stay sick yeah I get that if, if they get to if they want to do that I love them I hope they don't but you know I love them and they get to do that and if they don't want to do that then let's go yeah but let's if, go yeah, if they do, then okay. So, so I don't think that people have the impression that addicts, I mean now, that they have to say yes or no to please me or fix me or keep me okay. I'm okay. But the result, a lot of times in group, you know, in the, in the intervention training and then in the intervention is a lot of times, and I think that Ken and Candy and the other interventionists would say this too, a lot of times we're the only ones in the room that people aren't picked at. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't have to change to make us okay. You know, mm-hmm. I hope they say yes, but I, I don't have anything personally at stake for them to say yes. So they don't have to caretake me by, you know, or people please me by giving me an answer. Yeah. I just want, I just want the true answer and then we'll go with that, you know, um, the other thing about it is that, so I was, I started off as the counseling pastor at a church of 300 people and ended up as the head of the recovery department at a church of, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000, like, I don't even know what, okay. Um, because it was a safe place for people to go and struggle. And so they, they did. Yeah, and it grew and grew and grew. Plus, the concept of grace was being talked about out loud a lot at every opportunity from the pulpit. 
So the church grew like crazy. Dave Johnson was the pastor. He also co-authored that book on spiritual abuse with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been friends and colleagues for 45 years. 45 years. Oh. And actually, we just did a 10-part workshop that is going to be on DVD at some point called um, Too Good to Be True but it is a case for grace. And um, I mean, and so we, we worked together for 16 years and then the whole intervention thing came up. And what that was, was I have a friend who was an interventionist before I was. And I was kind of his mentor to get him into the whole counseling thing. In the first place, he was working with the youth ministry where they didn't really want to get into deeper issues than let's go to camp and be a positive influence. And he was seeing all these teenagers that were living in addictive homes or struggling with addiction themselves. And he wanted to do something, but they wouldn't support it. And he asked me what to do. And I said, go get a degree and you do it. You know? So he did, but he went into the whole thing about interventions. Okay. So then what happened was this is 1976. I get a phone call from him and he said, I'm wondering if you could go on an intervention with me just to be a sanity check. Cause this thing is so crazy <laughs> convoluted that at the end of the day, I would like to have a sane voice. And I said, okay. So <laughs> it was in Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And watching him do this. And I'm thinking, well, I've been doing this the whole time because (laughs) I'd be sitting in counseling offices with families or in treatment centers with families. And they always tell, they're always talking about the person who's not there. You know, they're off in a cornfield getting drunk at a kegger or they're whatever. They're not there. And all the people that are there are talking about the person that's not there. And then, I would say, literally, lots of times, I would say, well, we need to get in the same room with them. Let's have a plan. Well, that's all an intervention is. All an intervention is, is getting in the same room with a plan. That's all it is. I like that. Getting in the same room with a plan. Yeah. So that's when I decided that, plus, I saw such an immediate, like in one day, turnaround of a person's life and the beginning of a second chance that I decided I'm doing this. And that's how I got into the whole thing about just interventions. Right. I I had to be trained on that myself. I have my mom um, is, is still active, but doesn't identify it as addiction because it's a prescription. Um, But she's been on opiates since I was 12 years old and it's been very damaging. And then my son, I'm sorry. Well, call me after we hang up. Oh, I sure will. <laughs> um, and my son is six years in recovery. He had a broken jaw in football his junior year of high school, and we went through a nightmare roller coaster. Um, so I, just to maintain my sanity as the affected family member, had to be trained on all of these types of things because I wanted to know what am I dealing with? How do I respond? How do I get as healthy as possible? So um, 
it's a, it can go, it can be so crazy what you're dealing with. Right. Do you, um, well, see the thing about your mom and it must be okay. Cause it's prescription. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is so common, you know, of a rationalization. Right. And, um, see my rationalization when I was drinking was that I was a social drinker. And what that meant was I drank the same amount as everybody around me, but we were all stoned. I mean, we were, you know, right. but, but I was a social drinker cause I wasn't drinking differently than my social group, you know, but that was just a rationalization. Right. Yeah. So it was hers. Yeah. It's a really strong one. And um, I, I had a conversation with an aunt about a year ago who said, your mom has had a really terrible life and she's always in physical pain. And my response was, but you can medically research that these opiates aren't effective after about six weeks and she's been on them for more than 30 years. And they just will not hear because the justification builds walls up to continue the disease. Well, they start contributing to the pain at some point. They make it worse. Right. Yeah. So... tolerance so you take more and then you can get addicted right you know so uh, there's a saying about that you may have heard it but um it's that the well it's kind of gender related but it would certainly fit your mom so I'll, I'll, i will neutralize it okay the, the person takes the pill the pill takes the pill then the t- then the pill takes the person yeah Yeah, it really has. It's been, um, and there's been several reasons to continue the use from, it went from the car wreck injury to shoulder problems, hip problems, things like that. And it just perpetuates the cycle. And so she's still caught in it and it's cost a lot of family relationships. So, um, that is what it is. And all, and you know, I just believe the program's promise. I work a program of recovery myself as an effective family member. I believe the promise that if one person does the work to get healthy, the family situation is bound to improve. So like you said, you accept people that want to stay sick. I accept her and I have peace with her, but I continue to work on myself and I can't, I can't renovate that situation. I can just be healthy on my side of it. Right. That the irony is that you being healthy on your side of it is more of a confrontation than all the confrontations people try to do. Yeah. No, it is. Well, it changes the system. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's the truth. Um, what else? Um, your book, The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse, I accidentally found out you wrote that um, because I was researching because my family had, my mom's a little church lady. Our family grew up in church and we've experienced really toxic church settings and dynamics. Um, and I, I hope to have a few podcasts about that, uh, kind of opening up that conversation. We experienced a profound amount of hateful condemning doctrine, um, false prophecy, demon casting, demon assigning to people, manipulating people and controlling them with the threat of condemning and shunning and rejection and false discernments and all of those things that are the opposite of love that you're supposed to experience and represent in a church setting. I think that um, many don't get a healthy love in church if, if they experience a toxic church setting. And, and like I said, people are triggered by the thought of finding help or recovery in churches and don't think it's possible. Um, I'd love to know your thought about 
you said getting recovery into church. Do you think we're making progress? How do we open those doors? Well, I mean, that's a different topic than talking about spiritual abuse. That is. So let me just talk about spiritual abuse first because you brought it up. Yeah. All right. So people have a incorrect idea about what spiritual abuse is, and they picture Waco, you know, with a cult leader and all this stuff. And we were, we were just writing about the little white church down the block, I mean, or and all the other churches like it. Spiritual abuse is the misuse of authority. And that's all it is. That's how, that's what, that's what results in spiritual abuse. So, like, for instance, what's current right now is all this stuff about clergy sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And what's not being talked about with that is how spiritually abusive that is, too. But it's because people in the media and people are talking about that the clergy and priests and stuff and sexual abuse, they don't have a language or understanding about what spiritual abuse is. What's what's spiritually abusive about that, as opposed to, I'm quote-unquote, and I'm being semi-facetious here, quote-unquote, regular sexual abuse, although I want you to understand, I don't think there is such a thing as that, but... Like from a family member versus from a clergy, is this is a representative of God who now is taking something that should be allowed to be given voluntarily later. Okay? Yeah. And, um, but they're the representative of God. So, what's spiritually abusive about that is. Because they're a representative of God, and because in my bias, my belief system, God is the biggest and most helpful resource to help you recover from those kinds of abuses, now he ceases to be that. Yeah. You know, now he's burned up as a resource, and so you not only have you lost your not only have been shamed in that in the way of the abuse and all that, but now you've lost your biggest potential resource to recover from that. That's what's spiritually abusive about it. But it's, it's just about the misuse of authority. So when spiritual abuse is when somebody comes to get help or whatever for the purpose of being strengthened or further understanding or, you know, set free or whatever, and it results in the opposite of those things. And you're more bound up and you're more, you know, alienated from God. Your spirituality gets taken hostage basically by, to your behavior or to someone else's behavior. So I think that it's very prevalent and I think it's very damaging. And um, the joke was, you know, how you have this, kind of stereotype alcoholic who's walking around with a bag and there's a bottle of wine in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got in such trouble for this book that we thought, and our picture was, well, then there must be people walking around in churches with our book in a paper bag because, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There actually were pastors who stood up in pulpits and told people not to read it. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, you know, I haven't experienced it in the connotation of sexual abuse, but um, 
just lived, brought up in that misuse of authority. And those conversations would get deep into your subconscious where things would be said, like if you said no to something or you didn't agree, you were being unchristian. And when you talk about those in authority being the representative of God, they're also being, they are also representing your eternity your punishment. And when somebody is in authority position in a church setting or in your family, and they're calling you unchristian because of your response, that then doesn't just become an issue of that conversation. It's not just an argument with your sister or brother, mom or dad. It's an argument against your eternity and where you stand with God. And that is so damaging. Well, that's what I meant by hostage situation. Yeah. Spiritually hostage. So let me give you a very simple example of it. Because you've given some really extreme examples of it, but and obvious examples of it. But let me give you a really simple one so you understand the concept. Okay. Oh, and by, by the way, this whole thing about demon assignment or whatever. Yeah. One of the jokes we had was that you have a person who is struggling with some, you know, depression or some other thing, but they go to get help from someone who has an agenda that everything is demons. Right. Okay. So the, the joke, not joke, but, you know, <laughs> making a joke of that. Um, we used to say, uh, if you don't have demons when you get there, you have them when you left. <laughs> because they try to cast out demons that aren't there, which of yeah. course leave. But now you think that you've got demons that didn't leave. So you leave thinking you have demons. Yeah, if you have not experienced this, it is so. It is such a brainwashing torment. I mean, and I I lived that. That was my life for many years, coming from a family like that, and then I would find myself choosing churches that practice like that. Right. All right. So here's the simple example. Two two of them. So I've got these four married daughters, but when they were little, one day one of my daughters comes upstairs. And she says, Callie took my markers. Okay, now that's not unusual. I mean, that's just a kid trying to get you to do their work, you know. <laughs> and so I said, have you talked to Callie? And she said, no. I said, well, you need to talk to her. You know, if I take your markers, talk to me. <laughs> you know, like that. Yeah. Okay. So she goes downstairs and she says, um, Dad said you're supposed to give back the markers. <laughs> so I called her back upstairs and I said, okay, two things. One thing, first thing, that's a lie. I, I didn't say that. Here's what I said, okay? Second thing is, I really hate it when you use my name to get your sister to do what you want her to do. Wow, that's a great example. <laughs> yeah, and all of a sudden, it clicked. That's actually how... Dave and I came onto the whole concept of spiritual abuse is because that's what people do. They use God's name to get people to act the way they would really like. That is exactly right. Yeah. And then, uh, so, so let's say that I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm preaching a sermon or I do something that hurts your feelings. Okay. That's not spiritual abuse. That's like hurting your feelings. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what does scripture say? Scripture says, you're supposed to come to me and tell me what I did and how it affected you. That's what scripture says. Yeah. Okay. And so let's say you do. 
Well, if I didn't know what you were talking about, <laughs> if I just didn't see it that way, I would say, well, I, I don't I don't see it that way, but I, I'll look at it, and I really like that you came and told me about it. Okay. But if I say I'm the pastor and you don't get to do that, you know, that's the spiritual abuse part. That's right. Okay. Not hurting you part. Right. What happens in relationships sometimes. But see, people who are spiritually abusive, they think that being a leader makes you less accountable when actually the Bible says leaders are more accountable. It's a bigger deal if we screw up. Right. Why? Because people are following us. We're leaders. Yeah. Are us. So if we are inappropriate or, or, or whatever, it's a bigger deal if, than if we weren't. Not to say that that other stuff isn't a big deal, but we are more accountable, not less accountable. Spiritual abusiveness is telling you we're less accountable and you're the problem for thinking there's a problem. Yeah, and I think when you're hit with confusion like that and it's not, you know, there is a difference between somebody disagreeing with somebody or having hurt feelings and then that blocking of communication or even questioning them. And I would always hear that verse used to justify that, touch not the anointed, meaning don't speak against them. But it was, it's always been you know, kind of abused, but it causes so much pain and damage when you're not able to flow in that conversation. And you know that something confusing is going on. I think your, your intuition knows the turmoil and that something's not right. But if you don't know your value and have confidence in your identity, I think you go on longer in those situations. I think similar to being addicted, similar to being codependent, any type of abuse, I think it always comes back to where you're at in your own identity. When you see people use a verse like that and other verses like that to justify being hurtful or not being accountable or or that kind of stuff, um, the reason that is is because people have uh, a microscopic view of Scripture instead of a telescopic view. Okay. If you have a microscopic picture, then you see in the book of Peter, Peter's saying, you know, uh, do what your authorities tell you to. And if you have a microscope, then microscopic picture, then you say that's what the Bible says, and so, so you better do that. You know what I mean? Right. If you have a telescopic picture, which means you pull back now and see a bigger picture— you see Peter not doing that in the book of Acts. You didn't right. understand what I just Yep. Yeah. I'm following. Yeah. So basically what it amounts to is if authority is being used the way authority was intended, go with it. Yeah. If it's not, don't. Right. It, and it's a process of learning the wisdom about that, I think. I think it's easy to get confused if you're young or if you have damaged, damaged self-worth. It's a process, but you're right. Go with what, you know, is healthy. Well, have a bigger picture of, of it. You know, they told Peter, shut up, and he said, no. 
cuff, cuff me. Right. Which he wasn't taking his own advice in, you know, Peter, in, 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 in the books of Peter. So um, that's another contributing factor, you know, is that. Yeah. You know, we, we had so many toxic, weird situations. And, you know, growing up, we bounced around. I remember there was a book out by a guy, I think his name was Mike Wernke or something like that, that said that he saw somebody demonically move a car into a valley. And then he kind of confessed later that that wasn't true or not. I don't remember the stories out there. But anyway, we grew up in the middle of that as our church and home life. And it it kind of grew with us and it, my mom's addiction then entered the scene and our life exploded. She would call my high school teachers and other parents and say the world was ending and they needed to repent or I did. And then there was his hypocrisy of her abuse of pills and her nagging and it kind of turned into harassing and fear. And she would follow us around about the rapture. And um, that, that really in, increased on into my adulthood. And when I became a mother, she would call me, paranoid and obsessed with, you know, one year my son got a guitar for Christmas and she called and said he was going to rebel. And she called me 133 times at work to argue this point with me. And I got called into the office at HR. Is everything okay? And finally, I mean, I would get, I'd try to silence it or write her letters or argue or what I, nothing stopped this arguing. Yeah. And so finally one day she had called me at work again about the same subject and I got really mean. So she rebuked the devil out of me. And I, I said, raw, like <laughs> back in, in return, I growled at her and which I didn't win because then she called all my family members and said she rebuked a demon out of me and I approved it. And it was just unending. And I don't know what the, if the insanity was the abuse of pills or that, that the religious stuff kind of made her become unstable in her belief system, but it was so toxic and boiling over. A lot of that stuff has been amended for and calmed down. But that is really the, the religious abuse and craziness went hand in hand with the addiction in our life. And I think that's common in a lot of families. Yeah. I guess that when it came to your son's guitar, she had never heard Larry Norman, his song called, Why Does the World Have All the Good Music? <laughs> I don't know what she was thinking, but she, she would get fixed on a point like that and think she was, I mean, it was just kind of crazy like that and it was like you know how you said you didn't want your daughter using your name to get somebody to do something right, right. You're, you're then called unchristian or selfish and those are the scary terms to be called because not only is that a label directed at you that's negative that is your good standing with god and and faith and identity and eternity so it is a it's a chaotic thing to go through well uh, see the i think Another big part about that, why it hurts so bad, is because if you are a believer, your heart is warm toward God. Yeah. You know, you have a new heart. And you fear that eternity. You know, you do. But that's why the misuse of authority works. And it's, yeah, it works and it's painful and it can go on for decades. Well, it works because people have a... They want to be pleasing to God. They want to do what God wants and stuff. And so then the misuse of authority takes advantage of that. Even if it's not intentional, it still does. And, right. uh, you know, frankly, most people who are spiritually abusive are sincere. They don't, they're not trying to control people. You understand? They're not trying. That's not their goal. Their, their sincere goal is help you get closer to God, but they just do the opposite. 
or yeah, that, that maybe they're afraid you're not, you know, there, there were things were always perceived as a sign of somebody backsliding or being lukewarm or being demon possessed. Everything was seen through that lens. So I think that when you, when you see things through that lens, you try to control it back to safety. Right. And I'm worried about your salvation and stuff like right. that. Yeah. Because the, the other view of groups like that is that salvation isn't a gift. It's a loan. Yeah. And, you know, you could get, have the loan called any time. So it's not really yours. Well, yeah. And I usually had bad credit when it came to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, in their side anyway. <laughs> You're never really going to get it right enough, but um, when when you're dealing with a condemning doctrine, I think, um, and that's why grace is so important, and I think that's why people are afraid of grace because grace lets people off the hook that are maybe allergic to their senses, you know. So that's but that's why grace is so powerfully necessary. Yep. Um, one of your quotes I read, and I find it to be simple yet really powerful, is where you said, individuals and families become dysfunctional by accident, but they get well on purpose. And this is what I'm about, helping them do that. I love that so much. So if you could describe how you came about that and, and what your process is for helping people get well. Well, I mean, all, all it means, the first half of that means that people don't set out intentionally to become addict or to become dysfunctional. You know, I, I think that everyone, uh, I think that they're doing behaviors that at the, initially that they actually believe will meet some need or benefit them. Yeah. But you know, the, the addiction or the dysfunction is what results from that. So that's what I mean yeah. by um, not intentional. But you don't, you can't just sit around and have it get better by itself. You have to become purposeful about going in the other direction, and especially with addiction, because, and, and what that involves is getting whatever help you need for that to happen on purpose. Because yeah. it's not gonna, you're not gonna get better by accident. People that are, are addicts are not walking down the street and one day say, "Oh, my life sucks. I think I'll do whatever it takes." You know, I mean, there might be an exception to that, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Okay. So, you know, there there's a continuum of care. I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's you know, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but it's a package that they they talk about in Minnesota, which in my opinion was at the forefront of a lot of recovery stuff for the Minnesota model and all that. Okay. So at the beginning, so it's like a progression, like a, at the beginning is um, intervention and then detox and then primary treatment and then, or outpatient treatment and then aftercare, and then sober living, and then 12-step groups. You know, it's like a line. Mm -hmm. line. Okay. I am on the intervention side of that. And my opinion is that a lot of people, maybe most, I don't know, who are in this predicament are 
not going to do the rest of that line until you do the first part. Right. Something needs to intervene. You know, yeah. something needs to say stop. You need to hit a wall someplace. You know, back in the day, Hazelden Treatment Center did a survey of their clients and came up with this statistic that said, People have 54 interventions before the one that works. Okay. Typically, on the average. Yeah. But see, an intervention is just that your brother comes in your room one night and says, you know what, I'm worried about you. This isn't working. You need to get help. Okay, so there's one. Or you get a DUI. There's another. Or, you know, whatever. Your grades go down. There's another. So that's what they mean by 54, not 54 like what I do. Yeah, not like come into a room and have the plan. Like one of the interventions that worked for my son was that I would continuously write on index cards or inside Hallmark cards and leave phone numbers for crisis lines, treatment centers, something that worked with his insurance or that was feasible. And those were my soft interventions. And that, that ended up being the one that took, even though consequences kind of blew in and forced him to make decisions there were several interventions in place. Yeah. So um, I'm on the front end of the process. Now, that doesn't mean that if you asked me to do a talk on prevention, I couldn't do it. Right. But I don't care about prevention. I mean, I do. But you understand what I'm saying? That's yeah. Not what if you right. want to speak at your AA meeting about, well, see, I already talked about with you, I've already talked about complacency, how dangerous that is. See, that would make a great talk at a 12-step meeting. It would, and you know what? That's a big point my son has made, and it taught me a lot when I would ask him in the, he's six years in recovery now, I would ask him, what keeps you sober when you know some of your friends aren't and you're a young, good-looking, active guy? And he would say, every time I start to feel myself um, become complacent and maybe get that anticipation about wanting to go to the party scene or go here and there. I set a goal. I get busy on a goal and that goal can range anywhere from be sober for a year, be sober for today. It can be run a 5k, sign up for a class, do something toward a goal. So he said he always starts to sense that complacency because in his opinion, in his own life, complacency around that corner is another rock bottom for him. So that complacency is his big area that he always speaks about. When I worked in treatment at the very beginning, so this is like the 70s, when I worked in treatment, we had a director, <coughs> and he said, and he was like a really old school AA guy and, you know, trusty old guy. He said, um, the only cured addicts I know are using. Wow. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I love those, the old-timer statements because they, they're truth that blooms large. Well, I'll give you another one, even though it's off topic. He said, I've never met, met anybody too stupid to get well, but I've met a lot of people too smart. That's the truth. You yeah. can be too smart for recovery. That's the truth. So anyway, uh, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> helping people get well. I, I have two challenge questions for you um, that, that I was presented to ask you. Um, one is, what do you think is the most challenging addiction to work with? Um, two, there's two. 
Well, there's three, but two of them are a tie. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, methamphetamines, and, and the tie would be like bath salts and stuff like that, because the person actually loses their mind. Yeah. Yeah. They they become in drug induced psychosis and you know with the paranoia and everything else that is um involved i mean they think i'm like from the like the government <laughs> where yep if you cut out for a sec they think you're like from the government or something like so, uh, sometimes you'll see the paranoia reaches real spiritual stuff like god is sending me on a mission or this person's i have you know the delusional stuff seems to, so that, to have its own drum that that's a tough one yeah um i'll tell you a little short story about a, a intervention i did on with bath salts so the guy believed that this secret retired military officer had a company of invisible brainwashing shadow people. And they were to protect them, to protect his family from them. He made a weapon out of a squirt gun with magnets in it on a stick for batteries. And he would sleep on the porch roof to keep from coming in the house. I mean, okay, yeah. whatever. Um, and he said that they're so sneaky that they only affect um, people who are on bath salts, which is why you can't see them, okay? which is why only he could see them. Yeah. The reason they only affected people on bath salts is because when you looked at a person on bath salts, you would think, oh, they're on bath salts. And then that would keep their identity secret. Yeah. Wow. All right. So we're doing this intervention and we're getting nowhere because it's like, of course, everybody thinks that, of course, nobody understands. Of course, of course, of course, you know? And so I said to him, um, so it's your job to protect your family. Oh yeah. And if you could see him, you'd understand why, whatever. And I said, okay, so, if all of this is in your head and none of this is real and this is all drug effect and everything else, you really need help. And he said, yeah, like that. You know. And I said, but if it is real and it's your job to keep your family safe, then you really need to be at the top of your game. And so you really need help still. And he went, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so he went to treatment wow see it's almost like hostage negotiating and you don't know what it's going to take for anyone if we could figure out what it's going to take for someone to get it we wouldn't be in an epidemic because you don't know what's going to unlock somebody's willingness or mindset especially in a situation like that you're almost dealing with a hostage situation well it's called entering their psychosis right you know so basalt's method, that's on a tough one. 
My other challenge um, question, and I have an opinion myself personally, um, is what's the most challenging family dynamic? In my opinion, I think it can be enmeshed codependent grandparents, but that's just my thoughts um, and experience. Um, We find codependent parents and grandparents at times to be exquisitely frustrating and sick with the disease themselves, sometimes even sabotaging their loved one's recovery. So I would just kind of like your thoughts on that. Okay, I wasn't finished with the other one. Okay. Okay, so the, the tie is meth and basalt. So just look at them as one tough addiction. The other tough one. That oh, that was a tie. That's right. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I said there's two. The other one is just eating disorders. Really? I would have never guessed that. Well, it's because if you're an alcoholic and you've done your homework, then you know that you like Coors better than Miller Lite. That's about it. Okay, right. you like doers better than Jack Daniels. Eating disorder people have done their homework. They know more about their disease than anybody else. They know every calorie, every carbohydrate. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah. That's really hard to break into. They they believe they are totally, totally in control. Wow. So it would be eating disorder would be one of the toughest. I, I guess I would have never applied that because I was typically thinking substances, but that's no different really. And that's why eating disorder treatment is probably some of the most expensive treatment there is because in a quote unquote regular treatment center, the it's like a eight to one or 10 to one you know, one therapist for every eight or whatever. In an eating disorder place, it's one for two. They're very, very staff intensive because you got to follow them around, make sure they're not throwing up, make sure they take their med, you know, whatever. Very tough. And either way, you're still getting into their belief system and trying to reroute it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really what it all, that's the bottom line of it is belief system. I know a treatment center that when you get there for your eating disorder, the first, one of the first things they do is they have you stand up against the wall. they not stand up, face the wall, and draw, draw a picture of your um, body, a silhouette. Okay? Yeah. And then they have you turn your back and stand by it, and, you know, it's always two, three inches bigger than what's real. Wow. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, I'm going to have to add that to my research because that was I, that one threw me. I wasn't expecting that one. So then let's get back to what do you think is the most challenging family dynamic? I think it's grandparents, like I said, but I'm sure you have a professional opinion. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that specifically, but I would say families. Yeah. More often than not, a family is tougher than the addict because... Uh, and they don't see this, and it sounds mean, okay, but they have something at stake for the person to not get better. They don't get it. They don't, they don't see that. It's so important to understand that. Okay, well, I'll give you a story. So I was counseling this 19-year-old gal, and she 
and her dad had this very adversarial, very tumultuous relationship. And the mom's job was to be the peacekeeper. <clears throat> well, first of all, now this is an aside. I'm, I've, I've, you've, you've hit a button on the internet, now you're getting more options, okay? Right. <laughs> so this is an aside. In order for you to be a peacekeeper, there actually has to be peace to keep. You understand? Yeah, definitely. Peacekeeping is, is not the same as peacemaking. Peacemaking is going where there is no peace and helping peace happen. Right. Okay. Well, her job was a peacekeeper, but really what her job was was she was a, a truce maker. T-R-U-C-E. Yep. Okay. See, a truce is different than peace. A truce is you can hate each other, just don't shoot each other like, like us in Russia. Yeah. Okay? Like that. Um, that's not peace, though. Um, anyway, so then she would go to the daughter and say, you know, your dad doesn't mean all those hateful things he says, and he's had a really crappy month at work, and his boss has been on his case, especially for the last few days, so cut him some slack. So she would. And then she'd go to the dad and say, you know, your daughter's 19 for Pete's sakes. You know, she's starting to do more stuff and hang out with more people. And that's her job is just experiment and find out what life is about. So you need to back off. So he did. Now, I'm being facetious with this next thing. And so peace would break out. Okay? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> then she'd go to the daughter or to the dad and say, you know, on Saturday night, she was supposed to be in at midnight, but she didn't come in till two. And he'd go, see, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then she'd go to the dad, the daughter and say, you know, your dad's really ticked at you right now. So you better watch yourself. So then there was a war again. So she got her job back. Wow. That makes so much sense. Yeah. That's the job that people in families don't understand that they have is, you know, or to say it in, in a different way, if the person really gets well, the family's unemployed. Right. Okay. And some people are so uncomfortable with unemployment that they sabotage it and then they get their job back over and over. That's the toughest thing. Yeah, and if your job is to feel sorry for somebody or to be who fixes situations and is the hero rescuer, it's hard to give that up. Right. So it's like, it's like um, when we do an intervention and the person agrees to go and start them out, they're getting ready to go. I'll say to this family, so what are you going to do now? And they go, I don't know. See, they don't understand what that means that they don't know. I mean, you, I, I, I say, well, you'd have to go on a You missed that part? Yeah. You, you tell them they have to what? Well, you, not, you'd have to go on a date. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> you know, we haven't been on a date for a year. You know, so what are you going to talk about? They don't know. Yeah, that's because when I usually tell people, 
go to therapy, learn to meditate, start painting, get, go to the rooms of support. You need to do your work now. It's almost somebody described it to me like a baby mobile and the person in addiction is the big piece. And when they move, the whole family moves with them. And the process of recovery removes you and gives you autonomy and gives you a break from that. Yeah, but they don't understand that. Right. And they don't understand that the addict is their mood-altering substance. Yes, that's the truth. They don't understand that. And they don't understand that they have to be in recovery from the addict just like the addict does from heroin or whatever it is. Right. I always say that my son was using um, pills to feel well, and I was using him. Yeah. So that's what makes it hard for right. my family harder. That's the answer to your question. Yeah. That's, yeah, it, it is a challenging dynamic, and that's why the whole family needs to recover, in my opinion. My experience, once once I started doing recovery work, it was like we moved separately, but I would get healthier and more calm, and it would cause the situation to get healthier and more calm, and that's really the process, I believe, that works. Right. So now, let me tell you a funny story since we're done. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So I'm sitting on an airplane next to this guy, and a woman comes around the corner to get on the plane and she recognizes me from the show. So she's making a big deal about it. Huge. And pointing me out and saying to people, you know this guy? I know this guy. He's on television show. <laughs> and it's baby steps because people are putting their luggage up. So she's there for a long time doing this. It's horrible. Okay. So when she gets done, the guy looks at me next to me. The guy looks at me and says, well, I mean, don't worry. I don't have a clue who you are. Okay. And I said, well, that might be true, but now everybody thinks you're going to rehab. Oh. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. You went, oh, I never thought of that. No, no, they do. <laughs> That's so, funny. Do you stay in contact with people that have gone into treatment? And um, what are you seeing as far as um, long-term recovery? Yeah. So I don't um, keep in touch with um, people like the addicts unless they contact me because they're not my client. The family is my client. Right. So I would have much more contact with them and updates from them and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I do have contact with some clients, but they initiate it, okay? The second thing about long-term recovery, well, because I don't have that kind of contact, I don't really know that. But I know that the show, because they want to be able to say this as PR, I know that they have kept track the best they can. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm uh, give or take some – small percentage number because I don't know the exact percentage. So they've done about 300 interventions on the, for the show. We've done, I don't know, 280, I don't know, whatever, okay? And about 2 or 3% said no. You there? Said no to treatment? Yeah, they said okay. the they said no. Although I do know that some of them went later, but out of the ones that said yes, um, seventy percent might be more. Seventy percent are still sober. 
Wow, that's awesome. And that's not about me, and that's not about the show. That's about how effective an intervention is in screwing up a person's addictive lifestyle for a long time. Right, that interruption. Yeah, and also the family dynamic. Yeah, that is so important. Uh, somebody had um, said in a meeting I was in the other night that family members are so good at pushing your buttons because they installed them. And I was thinking about that when you were saying that you're in the room as the intervention and there's nothing at stake in the relationship. They're already safe with you. But those buttons are all there between family members and each playing a role and each having, you know, employment, so to speak, as you had said. It's it's such a family situation. And, and another guy that runs a meeting I go to says, family is my other favorite F word. And we just really love that because it can be it can be a make or break situation. Yep. Well, that said, I think you pretty much hit everything unless there's anything else. Um, before I get all your information so people can look you up and follow your work, um, do you have anything you want to share? Like, what would you say to anyone that's presently struggling and needing to recover and maybe not feeling like they ever can? Like, I know sometimes a shame factor enters in, and when you already have self-worth issues, and that gets coupled with decisions you're making in active use that affect your family or your own character, what would you say to somebody struggling in active use when it comes to recovering? Well, okay. Every individual decides when they hit bottom. So you can say, this is bad enough. Do you understand that? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's the same thing with families. When the family hits bottom, they might do an intervention, but they haven't yet, so it's not bad enough, so okay. I mean, one out of 20 people that call me actually do something. Yeah. You know, so they call me and they go, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, and they're crying, it's terrible. And I'll say, it sounds terrible, let's do something, then it's not that bad, it's not that bad. Okay, well, then it's not that bad. So call me when it gets that bad. You know, like that? Mm Mm-hmm. But if you're the addict, you can say, today, this is bad enough. And hitting bottom is like throwing a ball against the, the floor. It, gets, it bounces. The reason, they, the reason that the floor is bottom is because it can't go any further in that direction, and then it takes a bounce. Okay? Yeah. You're going to get a better bounce today than you are a year from now. So decide that this is as far as it goes. Yeah, I love that. Decide. And do whatever you have to do. You can't decide your way out of addiction, but you can decide that this is bad enough. Right. Okay. And did did it answer your question? It does. And I I, I remember when my son first went out to L.A. into treatment, he would have all of these um, celebrities in his treatment meeting or in his recovery meetings, and it was really – a strange experience, but one of them was Robert Downey Jr. was in one, and he always had the same quote, that the hardest part about changing his life was the decision to, and I remember thinking, that's crazy. Deciding to is easy. It's all the work you have to do after, but that's really not true. Deciding is a hard part, I think. That is a hurdle to get over, because then then you have, the steps can kind of just kind of calm after that, but it's the decision to, today is going to be the day. Yeah. Yep. And then what encouragement might you have for family members of a severely addicted or alcoholic loved one or somebody, you know, now that I think about it with an eating disorder and that's just deep in it? 
Yeah, don't wait. Don't keep waiting. Don't keep wringing your hands hoping they hit up, hit bottom before they die or kill somebody else. Stop that. Decide for you this is bad enough and you're going to do whatever steps it takes to get them the help they need. Also, as far as what you've been doing up to now is you've been you've been acting like their treatment center. You've been you've been the one who helped the attic. So you need to get fired from that and we need to get a real one, then things will get better. I love that. You've been acting like the treatment center. You've been acting like the higher power and the source of solution, truth, and recovery. That's so true. That is what the family does yeah. when it's continuing on. That is so true. Yeah. You suck. Stop it. <laughs> you suck. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> okay. So um, I will put the links in when I send this episode out. Is there anything you would like families to be directed to? A Facebook page? Um, maybe an email or just a site that you can receive and, and I know that your sites say I don't control who gets chosen for intervention so we're not looking for that but if anyone wants to connect to you um, compliment your work follow it etc send them to the website and if they want to send me an email from there they can okay perfect it's Jeff Van Vonderen and we will have that included with the show and with that said you definitely live up to all the hype and are as kind and wonderful and interesting as we all thought I am just trying to be the guy my golden retriever thinks I am <laughs> that's right I love it all right thanks so much and bye-bye you have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found on Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to The Unhooked Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>